Hello, my name is Theodora Di Tommaso, and I'm an IPE student at the Beacon School this year. You're currently listening to the first episode of my podcast on abortion economics. I hope you enjoy. For some background information, my project is really getting at whether limited abortion policy makes sense economically. I've noticed that most of the research I'm coming across concludes that increased abortion access a lot for the economic growth of women and then their families. However, I feel that this notion that abortion takes up large sums of public money and so on is still one that arises frequently. So through the series of interviews, I'm looking to better understand and verify these claims. These interviews are then going to be uploaded to a website for my class to see and get a gist of everyone's projects run a lot. Dr. Levine, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Philip Levine. I'm a professor of economics at Wellesley College, uh, and I've studied a lot of topics related to social policy, including a book that I wrote a little while back on uh, abortion policy, the economics of abortion policy. So yeah, we're going to start off with your 2004 book titled Sex and Consequences, Abortion Public Policy and the Economics of Fertility. This research is the first of your work samples that I came across, and I was just wondering what the writing and research process looked like in general, as well as who your intended audience was and what that main takeaway you were looking for was. So, uh, so I'm a, you know, an economics professor, and I spend a lot mm-hmm. of time doing a- uh, academic research, and um, mostly when I write papers, they get published in academic journals um, that are, you know, the papers are written for a very small audience of people who also have PhDs in economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they can be a little technically sophisticated. Um, that's great. And that's how you sort of learn in my profession. Uh, that's also not great in terms of communicating to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of writing that book was to take the level down from something that like, you know, really only a handful of people would ever read uh, to something that would be, you know, not necessarily, you know, it's not gonna be in the New York Times bestseller list, but that for people who are interested in the topic um, in a substantive and serious way, that it would give them a a much more uh, solid foundation in the way that an economist would think about a problem like this. I mean, I think it did exactly just that, just with me coming across it for this project. And I just wanted to follow up, considering that this was written a little while ago, I'm also interested to see if your argument has changed at all since then. Yeah, not so much. Um, So, you know, to briefly summarize the ideas, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's important to think about abortion policy, changes in abortion policy on a continuum from a world in which abortion is uh, freely available with essentially no restrictions um, to a world in which it's essentially outlawed. Um, You know, there's obviously an entire spectrum in between those two things. Um, And, you know, in the book, the the argument that I'm trying to make is that relatively, you know, in a a relative sense, uh, what would be considered sort of minor restrictions on abortion access parental consent laws, Medicaid Medicaid funding restrictions, things like that, um, might have a different impact than more substantial restrictions on abortion access, including its outright ban. Yeah. Um, And in particular, that if it's, you know, an outright ban or something resembling an outright ban is gonna, would lead many women to have 
find themselves in a position where they end up having a child that they otherwise would not want to have. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the more minor restrictions may be less likely to have that outcome directly, um, but would influence women's behavior in the sense that you can change, you know, be more likely to use more contraception, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and so the margin, you might get fewer abortions in response to say a Medicaid funding restriction um, because women uh, and, you know, couples are more likely to use contraception, um, but that would have no impact on the number of children born. Yeah. And so that's sort of, you know, what the evidence showed at the time, uh, you know, in the ensuing period. So what have we learned? You know, the restrictions that had been taking place over the last really more like decade um, have been not outright bans, you know, was we'll get to that in a few minutes as to where we are now, but um, more and more severe restrictions. So moving up the ladder, so to speak, uh, in terms of uh, the types of restrictions that, that states have been imposing. So Texas, for instance, you know, had very severe restrictions um, on the require, you know, what's, what's required for an abortion, for a facility to be able to provide an abortion. And if you make those restrictions severe enough, you would be severely, seriously restricting a woman's right to have, you can still have an abortion if you happen mm -hmm. to find a facility that had those characteristics, but like not very many facilities have that, those characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of clinics closed. Um, so as you start seeing more and more of those sorts of policies put in place, you started to see little bits of evidence that it was actually women responding by having children that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. So as you move up the ladder, it changes the nature of the response. Mm -hmm. And that seems like what we were seeing. Yeah. Um, you know, where we are now obviously is in a different position because, you know, there's no more modest restrictions. There's only extreme restrictions mm -hmm. in the Dobbs, post-Dobbs era. So, um, you know, and then this is in my book, is that like in some sense, this is the flip of what happened in 19, in the early 1970s when abortion was legalized. Uh, we went from a world where in many places in the country, abortion was pretty seriously restricted, like essentially restrict, completely restrict, restricted um, to being legalized, to being, you know, to being legal and pretty much available upon request with no restrictions really at that time. And at that point, we saw a huge drop in childbearing as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, so it may not be all that surprising to expect in the coming months to be to see a large rise in mm -hmm. births of to women who otherwise would have chosen not to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I see that like a lot of your work focuses on the economic impacts on families and how you have countless papers on childcare and mother employment decisions, living circumstances, and so on. So do you think that a lack of abortion access translates to a generational economic burden and how so? Um, it definitely has impacts. Like if you have a child that you don't necessarily want to have, mm -hmm. that's probably not great for you. And it's probably not great for your child. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what the evidence shows. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I guess more specifically the work that I did, and, and it's not random, right? So basically the women who end up having babies that they otherwise would choose not to have is not a random draw among women, um, particularly would be more likely to occur among, you know, economically disadvantaged women. Uh, so we saw, you can see, for instance, just in terms of like, well, who has abortions in the first place? Uh, way more likely to occur among lower income women. Mm -hmm. um, they're also less likely to be able, so in a, in a world in which abortion is legal in some parts of the country and not others, as it was in the early 1970s and as it is now, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not for if you're, if you're, uh, if you have means traveling to a different state to get an abortion is no big deal. Mm -hmm. And if you're in poverty, it's probably a big deal. Um, so the likelihood that, you know, so again, it's not, this is not randomly distributed. This is much more likely to have a bigger bearing on uh, particularly lower, younger and lower SES women mm -hmm. or socioeconomic status women. Yeah. So I'm seeing that this kind of comes down to like generational cycles. Do you think that there's like any benefit for like big companies and like those more capitalistic forward companies and like keeping the poor in this position? Is this like allowing them to profit more? Because I don't know, you just see these families not spending as much and I don't know how, like what that would translate to in terms of like the economy. Yeah, I don't really see this as an economic question in that dimension. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, um, you know, taking a step back, you know, in terms of thinking about, well, what is economics? Mm -hmm. And I think that it is uh, uh, in the public's mind, economics is about business and capitalism mm -hmm. and making money. Um, that's so as a professor of economics, I can tell you that's not what we study. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that we that is included in what we study, but what we study is much broader than that. Mm -hmm. So I would make the argument, and in my mind, this is consistent with you know the work, all the work that I've done in my career. Mm -hmm. Is that really like you know, economics is about decision making. Anytime that there's a decision that an individual has to make that affects their well-being, that's economics. Mm -hmm. Um so doing things like changing the environment in which we live, for instance, regarding abortion policy, that changes the circumstances in which a woman is a woman and a family are making decisions about whether to have a child or to abort mm -hmm. or to use contraception or whatever. Those are all decisions mm -hmm. that can be influenced by these external circumstances and modeling that is economics. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I see this as economics. I don't see this as, you know, this is not like a, you know, you know, from a Marxist perspective or something a capitalist plot. Mm -hmm. That's not the way that I see the world. Yeah. And I think that's something that we also like as international political economic students, you know, we're coming into this class with really no background in like the math-based econ. So I think that's something that my teacher really emphasizes econ is political study. You know, you can't make these decisions without these kind of this background knowledge and all these biases. I kind of wanted to move to your research on teenage pregnancy rates in the U.S., I came across your article titled, Why is the Teen Birth Rate in the U.S. So High and Why Does It Matter? 
In the introduction, you and Ms. Kearney write, it reflects a decision among a set of girls to drop out of the economic mainstream. They choose non-marital motherhood at a young age instead of investing in their own economic progress because they feel they have little chance of advancement. You go on to claim that addressing teen childbearing in America will require addressing some difficult social problems, in particular, the perceived and actual lack of economic opportunity among those at the bottom of the economic ladder. So I was just wondering, what do you mean exactly by economic opportunity, especially in the context of young teenage girls? So the context for that paper was, uh, and the work that we do on teen childbearing, mm -hmm. childbearing is about sort of the role of um, income inequality. And so we live in a society that's extremely unequal mm -hmm. um, and becoming more unequal over time. Mm -hmm. um, and that has a bearing on you know individual decision making. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we're trying to convey in that in the quote from the quote you were reading from is this notion mm -hmm. that you know if you're you know, in a perfect world, you can make an argument that income inequality isn't that big of a deal mm -hmm. as long as um, everyone has equal economic opportunity. So, you know, you're born into the world and some people are born to families that have greater resources and other families are born, or other children are born into families that have less, fewer resources. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be not be your first choice, but like if at the end of the day, you get to start from scratch from the blank slate and where you went, where you end up mm -hmm. is a function of your own successes and failures and not mm -hmm. from your starting point. Yeah. Um, and if everyone had that level of economic opportunity, then maybe income inequality is not that as bad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can talk about like other issues there, but like not as bad. Mm -hmm. Um that's not really the world we live in either. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, suppose you're born at the bottom of the income distribution and you feel like you have little chance to, to, to move up. A common argument that people would, would raise against having a child at a young age is that the impact that it's going to have on your life, mm -hmm. it changes your prospects. Mm -hmm. All we're trying to say here is that it really may not be changing your prospects. Um, because if you're born at the bottom with little opportunity to go up, you know, uh, colloquially speaking, like what difference does it make? Mm -hmm. um, it's not gonna change your outcomes anyway, your outcome anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the point of the work that we do is to try to like, you know, so for instance, the evidence on the impact of having a, a baby at a young age mm -hmm. um, is pretty limited. Like it has really not much of an impact. And that's completely consistent with the argument that we're making. Mm -hmm. um, and then why is teen childbearing so high in the United States? The argument that we're making is because greater income inequality, high income inequality with low mobility. Mm -hmm. um, why not have a baby? Mm -hmm. So would you say that like the opposite of this is what you see in like European countries in Canada? And is that why those rates are so much lower? So basically it's just the opposite, right? So that mm -hmm. if you less inequality and greater opportunity means would, would lead to fewer mm -hmm. teen births. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So would this opportunity be something that could be possibly supported through policy changes with just, I don't know if it would be so much reproductive health and education and childcare, considering what you've just said, is this something that's like a cultural social behavior or is this something that could be supported with government change? Oh, you know, you're right. So I would argue strongly in favor of policies that help reduce inequality and help improve Mm -hmm. economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not a simple thing to fix. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there's a lot of policies that we talk about that all have the potential to sort of have tweak those outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of a wholesale revision of our economic structure that results in less inequality and greater opportunism, that is a very large hill to climb. Mm -hmm. One that we should be striving for though. Definitely. And then just drifting off from that, I wanted to kind of get back to like my guiding question. I don't know if this is something that you've like explicitly researched, but I feel like it could still be similar to what you know, your whole career has been dedicated to. So I just find it extremely interesting that like a lack of abortion access, it like most harms the working class, the lower class, and how there's this notion that like the Republican class um, is supposed to be the party of like the working individual. It's not the Democrats are supposed to be these big businesses and so on. And like, yet we see that Republicans are the ones that are coming against abortion. So was this just like a separation of church and state? Is this just religion. I was just wondering if you think there's a larger problem at stake with that. So I think, you know, this is basically crossing over the line from what's economics and what's politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I claim no expertise on politics, despite my strong interest in it. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, why Republicans think the things that they do, I, you know, I <laughs> would probably be, it'd be inappropriate for me to comment on that. You're, you're, I mean, I agree with you that there's um, mm-hmm. uh, some irony there. Okay, that's fair. Um, And then my final question is once it's kind of a tangent. I've noticed that you've done great work on the economic aspects of college. So kind of just definitely moving on from my main thing. You know, this is something that my teacher often touches upon during class. And he really emphasizes that we, you know, our college decision is really based like on financial opportunities he has us looking at American universities abroad because tuition is so much lower and you just, you know, you grow so much more as an individual and just as well as avoiding taking out loans and becoming debt ridden. So considering that my peers and I are seniors in the midst of the college process, I would like to ask if you have any advice for us, whether that's from your personal experiences in college or just what you've come across in your research. Well, my guess is if you're all seniors in high school at the type of institution that you're at, my guess is most of you are just finding out right now what colleges mm-hmm. you're going to next year, um, since you probably all apply your own decision. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, mm-hmm. going back to your earlier comment about how you provide more economic opportunity, um, access to college is something that I very strongly believe in, mm-hmm. um, and finding ways to uh, increase access and make it you know, make it easier, particularly for lower income, in fact, from students from lower income families to be able to uh, attend institutions like the one that I work at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's important and a really a relevant goal. And in some sense, that's like why I study that. 
as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, so I don't know if you, I have a new book out on college pricing, so I'm not sure if you've mm-hmm. seen that, but, you know, I think a lot of times though, uh, part of the problem is associated not with the price, mm-hmm. but with people's understanding of the price. Yeah, that's what he touches on a lot. And I work at an institution that char- charges, quote unquote, $80,000 a year, mm-hmm. which is, uh, in case you weren't aware, a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> For 17-year-olds to be taking out. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and that is a lot of money. But most people don't pay that amount of money. Mm-hmm. And in particular, at, at elite institutions mm-hmm. like mine, uh, we have what are called meekful need financial aid policies. And so mm-hmm. you fill out your CSS profile or your FAFSA or whatever. Um, and the result of that process is something called an expected family contribution, which is mm-hmm. designed to tell you what, what you can afford, quote unquote, to pay. Yeah. At a meekful need institutions, that would, that's what you pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if you're making, so an institution like mine that charges $80,000 a year, you know, if you're making $100,000, if your family makes $100,000 a year, you're not paying anywhere near that much. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure, the one thing which I uh, would guide your teacher for her future students, since mostly you guys are probably done with this process, is, uh, so I also, I run a nonprofit corporation now mm-hmm. um, called My Intuition Corp. If you go to myintuition.org, all one word, um, you will see uh, an extremely simplified cost estimator for 75 or 80 schools in the country, including many elite institutions. Um, and you will find very quickly, within a couple minutes, uh, get a rough estimate of what we charge and what you'll see is that what we charge is way less than what people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, one of the fundamental aspects uh, of the problems in college access today is that people just don't know. They think that we yeah. charge $80,000 and we do charge $80,000. If your family's making like 300,000 or more, mm-hmm. Um, which would put you in the top like 2% of the income distribution. That's yeah. paying full price. Okay. So it's really just this lack of transparency that, you know, you have some people being shooed away and then you have some people who are kind of in that opposite position when they take out all these loans and other stuff without even knowing what they have to do in the future. So all those loans and all that other stuff tends not to be a problem in the market mm-hmm. at elite institutions because for the financial aid is so generous. Mm-hmm. The generous that level of generosity only exists at maybe sixty or seventy schools in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get into the mass part of the market, mm-hmm. including most state flagship institutions, mm-hmm. including SUNY schools, for instance, um, their financial aid policies are not very generous, and so mm-hmm. it's great that SUNY charges. $35,000 or whatever of, of, you know, full price. Um, and if you're making a lot of money, that's a great deal for you. But if you're making 50 or $75,000 a year, just a middle-class family, mm-hmm. 
SUNY doesn't charge, SUNY charges those students way too much. SUNY charges those students more like 10 or $15,000. They don't have that much money. And that's where you get all the loans. Um, so what's interesting about it is the institutions that are allegedly the cheapest and often that's not the case. Mm -hmm. They actually for lower income students may be considerably more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that nobody really understands college pricing is part of the problem. And mm -hmm. in many institutions, the fact that lower income students pay too much for, are expected to pay too much to go to college is another important part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we need is a much better way to set up a college pricing system so that yeah. everybody pays what they can afford. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the the problem itself is so complex because you can even think to like merit-based scholarships and, you know, SAT and ACT scores. And at the end, it really all comes down to like socioeconomic status. So you can't yeah. afford it, you can't afford it. I know. So yeah, I would definitely argue that this problem is just like, same thing with what we were saying before with just like abortion policies and like having people be pushed to pursue higher education and reach for jobs that they would never believe they'd be able to do. So yeah, it's just, we can see that socioeconomic status really just is a main determinator in all of these. Right. And at the end of the day, really, you know, getting back to this earlier point is that mm -hmm. you know, is what I believe is an, a critical emphasis on the on economic opportunity. Like basically, mm -hmm. if you don't have economic opportunity, like you are in a bad place. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, in our country, the extent to which we offer that to individuals, particularly from lower SES backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in the context of the US, you would think that like such a yeah, top, yeah. top nation that you wouldn't be having these problems. Yeah, we kind of have this myth that we are the land of opportunity, but not so much. Yes, I see that. <laughs> well, that was all of my questions. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I definitely learned a lot. Um, both on abortion policy and just university in general. So yeah, thank you so much. Excellent. It's nice talking to you. Great talking with you too. Have a great night. Okay, take care.